When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talk shotguns for upland hunting with Doug Stewart. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 256. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Got a familiar guest on the show today, author of the traditional side-by-side parts one and two, Doug Stewart. We're going to talk double guns today, and we will do that in just a moment. A quick thank you to Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these conversations coming your way. Patrons are eligible for giveaways, bonus content, get a little Bird Shop Podcast can cooler and sticker gift pack. I got a few of those to send out this week. Thanks to the new signups and thanks to all patrons out there. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, I don't have much else for you all today. Another reminder for upcoming shows and events that I will be at along with Upland Gun Company. First one being the Seaweed Show or Southeastern Wildlife Exposition down in Charleston, South Carolina coming up in just a couple of weeks, really two, three weeks. Can't wait to head down there. It's going to be a good time. I just did an interview with somebody that is in Charleston and has been to the show before. You'll hear that in an upcoming show. But after talking to him, I couldn't be more excited to be heading down to Charleston, South Carolina for that show. Can't wait. And if you want a chance to stop by the Quail Village and check out the guns from RFM and Upland Gun Company, along with a bunch of other great exhibitors, please stop on by the Quail Village down at the Seawee Show in Charleston. And then after that, first part of March, we'll be headed to 
Pheasant Fest in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Myself, Jerry Havel will be there. Del Whitman's going to be there. Uh, we've got the big booth with Final Rise and Onyx Hunt. Can't wait for that one as well. It's going to be a great show. South Dakota should be a good time. And there's even a Trampled by Turtles concert that kicks off the event. Uh, Duluth Band, if you are unfamiliar. I wouldn't say that I am a Trampled by Turtles mega fan, but I will be going to that show, and it will actually be the first time I've ever had a chance to see Trampled by Turtles live, so I am excited for that as well. Hope to see some of you at Pheasant Fest. All right, let's jump into the conversation today. Doug Stewart, probably know him. You've heard him on the show before. He was getting some questions from folks reading his books, and we were going back and forth a bit. Figured we'd bring him on and catch up with Doug a little bit, talk about his upland season, and dive into side-by-side shotguns, of course. If you know Doug, you know he loves side-by-side shotguns, so that is the primary focus of our conversation today. And with that said, let's jump into it. Welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot Podcast, author Doug Stewart. Were you guys sub-zero this week? Yeah, I think the lowest it got here at my house was about 16 below. Mm. And of course, at many days, it didn't even make it above zero. Right. Got a little bit of snow. Nothing crazy, but I know you're really in the rough country. Well, yeah, the the temperatures that you that you threw out are about what we had. We had same same deal, sub zero. I don't. We probably hit sixteen below one one of the nights, but it's I don't know. It's what are your thoughts on on the cold? Well, besides just liking it, <laughs> yes. Do you okay? Let, let me ask, let me ask a different question. Do you do you enjoy it? for like just a second or like a day to go out and just sort of breathe that cold, fresh winter air at all? I do. I enjoy it being an excuse to rent a movie, start the fireplace, (laughs) stay in your sweatpants, you know, rent a movie and just have a good time. And so it's okay once in a while for me. Yeah. Well, I will, I will agree with you there. I, any excuse to fire up the wood stove or I got a pellet stove here in my office so it's not quite the same aesthetics as a wood stove but it still does the trick and it throws out some nice heat so we've been running that all week. Well good. So you're you're life speed there. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it's probably a probably a movie night tonight, Doug, so uh, it's Friday. It is, and that's it might be the same way for us, so I like your style <laughs> for sure. Well, I just man, I unless you got anything to discuss, I just hit record. I figured we would we would jump right in. We we had a little little scheduling thing, but we are here and we're rolling and Doug is back on the show and we got double guns to talk about. And that's that's the best subject there is. Well, I was just before we jumped on here, I was paging through the volume two, traditional side by side part two, and a few pages in, man, I I stopped me in my tracks on page number five, the photo the caption of the photo is this is perfect hun and sharptail country and i would have to agree it's uh it's a little snapshot of some rolling terrain and some woody vegetation and shrubbery and golden grass and yeah it looks like sharptail and hun country to me and it seems seems quite a while ago back in september when i was out that way chasing those birds and especially when we look outside and and consider consider the conditions right now kind of Took me back to that moment for a little bit. Yeah, we did. It's some of the best sharp tail and hunt hunting I've I've ever had still to this day. Mm. Really, 
And so that's how I started the book. I like to start it with a memorable hunt and, and uh, bring it to light for people. And all my books are true stories with pictures of my guns. And I've done a lot, a lot of upland bird hunting. I'm pretty obsessed with them, of course, but the art and science of them. And I've got a lot of people I didn't realize that are emailing me all the time that feel the same way. And they've got the bug. And it's pretty neat to see it, it, it catching. Right. You know, and my books have an undertone, of course, of my strong beliefs in God and, and family. I love my family and, and our country, and I'm very nostalgic, and I like the traditional ways. And it, it just seems to add more meaning to everything, and I enjoy and appreciate everything in God's beautiful uplands. And I'm finding out that so many people cherish that and are hopping on board and, and, and wanting to be part of this. And it's something I do with my wife and our little bird dogs. And that's what we do when we take a vacation. We take a hunting trip. Yeah. You got two, got two two setters now? We got two setters. And I got to keep in shape following those things around. <laughs> so I'll tell you what. Yeah. How old are they? So the youngest one's going to be turning four pretty soon. And my oldest one, Emma, is going to be in July turning 10. Okay. And they've added immensely to our, our hunting lines. Of course, they're always just so fun to watch them hunt, and they're always rare to go and in high spirits about it, and the man, they can find birds. Yeah. What was, bring me up to speed, are you, is your hunting season over, or do you still have opportunity, or what's the status? Well, I think what I'm going to do, because we just got boxed in with some cold, and I'm just, I'm getting too old to want to go out and sub weather yeah. with the wind blowing like crazy, so I'll take them here in a few weeks to a game farm a couple times and that'll be it because i have hunted hard i started right away with dove in september and you know i've been to wyoming a couple times for chucker and hans you know i've been up in michigan of course for woodcock and grouse and nebraska for pheasant eastern colorado for pheasant and so it's been a good year yeah what was your what was your assessment on how was the grouse hunt this year for you up there in Michigan, because I was way up in the UP, was phenomenal. There was just grouse everywhere. Wow. I don't know. It's it's comparable to some of the highest levels I've ever seen in grouse. Wow. And of course, well, I was in the first part of October, there's still a lot of woodcock around. Mm, yep. And so, of course, grouse, you know, the first year I hunted them, maybe it was the second, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I shot quite a few. I got lucky. I had... One pop up by the side of the trail, two coming down the trail. And then since then, I realized, you know, what a good year that was. Lucky shot. <laughs> yeah, a little, had a little beginner's luck. <laughs> yeah, Funny. it was. They're not easy. Yeah, yeah. That, it can go that way. You know, some some days you just get the looks and and then other days you feel like you have no idea what you're doing out there. <laughs> yeah, you're like, this is, man, They they just seem to be able to fly through the, the timber and you know not even hit a branch or anything and, right. and you, you can't even move your gut it's just it's a lot of fun it's a challenge for sure yeah no doubt do you have a so you kind of i mean i know we've talked about it in some of the previous episodes you've you definitely you've gone around and you go grouse hunting and you do some different stuff is there a is there a bird that stands out to you that's kind of like your go-to bird or do you really just like the variety and kind of mixing it up well now that i'm older i like the variety okay and I like traveling to different states because, you know, I mean, what better place to be in October 
than in the woods with all the gorgeous leaves changing colors. Right. And the falls of the air, the rolling, you know, mountain little trails you're going down. It's just gorgeous. And then, of course, the prairies have it has its own beauty. And I started off in September. We went up for some blue grouse up in our mountains, the Rocky Mountains, which was gorgeous. So I really like, you know, the different birds and the different habitats. And they're, I get probably a little bored of just doing one species, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting because I think about that. You know, I I definitely, there. you have a special relationship kind of with your home covers and the place that like I've spent most of my time here and I hunt here. And so I, you appreciate sort of the subtleties and the nuances of the seasons changing, even within the hunting season, you know, you got early, early season in the grouse woods is a lot different than say November or December. And so I, you appreciate that, but I would love to be able to have that, you know, if I could live in two places at one time and have two falls every year, you know, something like that, where you could, you could have that same sort of ebb and flow and cycle for multiple locations. And, you know, some people are kind of nomadic and can travel around and spend extended periods of time in different places. I'm not able to do that as of right now. And it it is what it is, but it would be, it would be interesting. I definitely have appreciated the experiences I've had going to other places and, and seeing other birds and where they live. It's definitely, it's fun. You know, it is, and I don't want to be adverse. I mean, I didn't realize it until I started hunting quail in New Mexico, what a challenge it was chasing around scaled quail yeah. and gambles quail. I used to think that, you know, pheasants were, you know, runners. And I couldn't believe the way these little gambles quail run all over the desert, <laughs> how challenging it was. And it, it was great. So when you wrote the first book, did you, was that kind of like a, was it, I mean, I, they were both a passion project for you, but was the first book just like sort of the culmination of your passion for side-by-sides and just sort of wanting to pour that into something or were there, cause I, like, I don't know if you ever had a blog or anything. I know you have a website now, but was there, what was the inspiration for writing that first book? Well, that's kind of a good question because, you know, I fell in love with side-by-sides and upland bird hunting. So I bought every book I could in it. You wouldn't believe how many books I've got, how I started studying it. And I've got that kind of brain. So, you know, I'd take my guns apart. I, I wanted to learn how they worked and started studying ballistics. And, you know, Macintosh is pretty influential because I really like his writing. Yeah. I learned I learned a lot. I could say that about many authors, of course. But I didn't agree with him on everything. And I could see how he had his own bias. And like an example is, is he wouldn't talk about or teach you anything about Damascus barrels. He just said, they're no good. Don't use them with, you know, modern ammo. They're dangerous. <laughs> and I, I was going to research them, and I did. And I found out that's really not true. You take somebody like Kirby Hoy- Hoyt, which has owned hundreds of thousands of English guns, and he's in his mid-70s, and he brings them in all the time. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard him talk it. about Damascus barrels before. Well, he thinks they're better. He, it's his favorite, okay? And I would definitely not say they're better. And I explained that in my second book, an English best steel, English best Damascus is best. And as long as it's nitro-proofed, it's good to go. But instead, I researched, I mean, some of the best swords I've ever made were made with Damascus. Right. And they can make that steel as hard as they want if they just keep pounding it and keep, you know, working it and working it and working it. So I did learn about 
quality Damascus and I own several of them and I shoot them, but they are safe. They are nitro proof, which you got to make sure there's plenty of low quality that went around. So anyway, I didn't agree about everything, but that's where I kind of wanted to write my own book and what my experiences and how I really felt about it and, and why. And I kept having dealers tell me, I'd call them up and I'd be like, Hey, you know, I want you to ring the barrels. I want to know if the ribs are loose. I want to know the minimal barrel wall thickness. And they're like, man, you, you know more about these guns than me. You, and I had a couple of them tell me, you ought to write a book. So a combination of some of my friends and stuff that were pushing me, where people kept saying, they're like, man, you need to put this in a book. So then I got to think about my first book, how I started, what information I wished I would have had. Sure, yeah. On how to general fit of a gun and how to shoot instinctively and i needed to know about chokes because i didn't know about the beginning so then that's how i started my first book i had to own a lot of books to just get the information i piled in that one book and then i knew that balance was probably the most important thing in an upland bird gun and you needed to be able to mount it consistently perfectly every time okay and that's so important to be able to shoot all these different directions so that I involved and got even more serious in part two for the people that wanted to continue on this journey of side-by-sides in the uplands and give them the rest of the information they need to know. And now I got people, you know, wanting me to write a third one and, and emailing me all the time. And, and having, I've had people meet me to try to fit them for a gun because they haven't had much luck with fitters. Hmm. And, and so that's where I have people just keep emailing me. They want to know what a, really great makes a really great upland bird gun in a in a hole and of course i'm getting a lot of questions about non-toxic shot and yeah you know some different things like that still so there's always things to discuss about it but they if they read the two books they're going to get most of that information yeah definitely some good some good reference material and i think we talked about that last time some of the some of the charts and stuff that you have in there just really good sort of baseline knowledge about about chokes and shot size and payloads and great, great stuff, great books to have on the, on the shelf for that reason alone. Are you the kind of guy, like, like when it comes to your guns, obviously you've owned a bunch of them. So when you get them, are you buying with, are you looking for a certain profile of stock dimensions when you buy things or do you buy guns and just kind of know that you're going to adapt yourself to the guns and, and shoot them and kind of just assess those stock dimension setups and just shoot different guns with different dimensions? Or do you buy them with the idea that you're going to be bending stocks and doing that kind of thing? How do you approach that being a, a buyer and seller of guns, if that makes sense? Okay, so I used to, I know what I need for a gun to fit me, okay? Right, right. And the problem is, is a lot of people are going to a fitter and they're fitting them for this you know, seven pound gun with a straight stock, whatever they happen to be wearing on. And they get them out and say, this is what you need. Well, then the guy goes and buys, you know, a six pound 20 gauge. And the lighter the gun is, you can have the stock a little bit longer. You almost need to because it's light. And we're going to re- naturally reach it out in front of you more. If the gun's a little heavier, you're going to probably need a little shorter stock. You know, you can take a shorter stock with a pistol grip. You're, you're going to cradle it more. It can make a difference of at least a quarter of an inch, if not more. So there's variables is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then I've noticed when they fit you for it, 
it's more geared up towards, you know, shooting clays. Well, I'd like to see you mount that gun the exact same way that there have you with the high elbow, the whole nine yards. When a bird jumps up behind you and you spin around to shoot it, or when the birds jump up and they just boom, they just drop off down the hill because you're shooting chuckers and you're walking on a hill, you know, that's got a slant. So the point is, is you're not set for everything just because you went a fitter and you have every gun exactly the same. There's no way. Right. When you own many guns like me, but I know this, I can pick up a gun and I can tell you, I can point it around the room and I'll say, okay, this one isn't fitting me because of this. Right. Right. All right. And so I just had a gentleman contact me. This is a while back. He said, Hey, I bought a CZ and this thing just feels like a BB gun in my hand. And, and he goes, I'm kind of a big guy. And I am heading to, to Loveland. And is there any way you'll meet me and give me some ideas of what stock I should be shooting? Okay. So I met him at the Ziggy's coffee shop. And I'm not a very big man. Okay. I used to be five foot eight. You know, I'm 55 years old. I, I'm probably five foot seven now. I weigh 179 pounds. My arms aren't very long. I got kind of a thin face. I'm telling you this to tell you that people aren't going to be able to shoot the same gun as me. Okay? Right, right. He walks through that door at Ziggy's. Oh, you must be Doug Stewart. I seen your picture in the book. You came over to me and this man's six foot eight. <laughs> and his arms, I mean, unbelievable how long they are stuff. And I was like, oh, no wonder you couldn't shoot that CZ. I, I, I was like, are you kidding me? And he knew I liked Churchill's. What do you think about that? And I said, no, don't even think about it. I said, you were talking about a man here that needs a, a right. light to pull, probably 16, 16 and a quarter inches long. Yep. I said, a seven pound game gun will be light to you. It's going to need probably 30 inch barrels. Yep. And he was way off. He had no idea. Right. And I explained to him why. And I said, look at how close my eyes are set together and how narrow my face is. I don't need very much cast offs. And I told him how much cast off I think he's going to need. And I just gave him ballparks. And so bad, I know he wanted a lighter weight bird gun, but I'm like, seven pounds is light to you. Right, right. Yeah, he's going to be able to. You're not going to control anything else. Yeah. So point being is, is mine are set up differently, but I know I can shoot them all. I don't like changing guns anymore. I don't want my stocks bent because they seem to spring back sometimes after years. Yeah. It messes up the finish on them. When you start adding a bunch of pads and this and that, it changes the balance of the gun. So then I'm needing to hollow out the stock a little or taking the pad off and to make it fit me. And then I'm needing to add some lead to put a butt plate on there. And in most guns, it's not worth it to me. And, and a gunsmith has got the thing for, drives me crazy, three, four months. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. Nowadays, it's even worse, okay? And, so yeah. I have people calling me. And they're wanting an English gun now, okay? So I tell them, kind of know your dimensions. Find something extremely relative. You can make small adaptions, yeah. but nothing crazy. Yep. Use some common sense if you're wearing a bunch of jackets and stuff. It, you know, it might need to be a little shorter. So mount the gun. Feel the gun. That's one of the most important things is that you can mount that thing perfectly every time in every direction with your eyes closed. And then when you open your eyes, you just happen to be looking down the rib. Mm. And then you're going to have a great gun, okay? And then figure out approximately how much you want it to weigh. It doesn't have to be perfect. Your balance point, you need to know what kind of balance point you like, okay? And I already know. You know, I don't like barrel-heavy guns. And if the gun weighs 
you know, I do pretty good with something around six pounds. The mass weight of that six pounds is enough to keep it moving because I pull the trigger as soon as it hits my shoulder. And you need to have it light enough that you can carry it all day. Yeah. But yet it, it needs to be relative. You need to be able to handle it smoothly with balance. It can't be too light. You can, you didn't. If the chokes aren't as big of a deal, get them about what you want. It don't matter because you can get those opened up easily. Figure out if you want a side lock or box lock. And, you know, follow follow my book. Like when I put in there, how to buy a used gun. You know, ask the dealer everything I did in, in my book. I told about minimal barrel wall thickness, if it's got tight ribs, if there's any cracks off the upper lower tang. I, I gave all that information. Yeah. Okay. And then people are emailing me saying, well, these English guns are too expensive and I want a great one. Okay, well, we all know the expensive, best, what they consider best that are expensive are Purdy's and Holland and Holland's right. and Grant's and Woodward's and Bosses, okay? So you're all going to be, you know, $25,000 yeah. plus. Yeah. Well, that's not necessary, okay? If you want me to throw out some names out there, you can get some phenomenal you know, I, I think William Powell's, their seven pin side locks, their best side locks they make are as good as a Purdy. Hmm. It'll be a fraction of the price. You yep. might pay for a best William Powell, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars $9,000. We all know that Greeners are great. You know, Gibbs, Wesley, Richards. Yeah, obviously, names. I have a thing for E.J. Churchill's, William Evans, Papes, Joseph Langs, Lancaster. Charles Ellis, the list goes on. Yeah. But there's a great list of guns there that made best side locks and box locks that are great guns. I know we mentioned this before, but I always I always like recommending just looking at going to either Kirby Hoyt's website, vint, is yep. it it's vintage doubles, right? Vintage doubles. Yeah, vintage and- doubles. Either that or you can his stuff is on Guns International and he's got good listings, he's got great photos, and he has a full spec sheet on on all the guns, and usually a description about the maker. It's, so you can learn a lot just by going to his listing site on Guns International and just looking. I mean, I've I've spent not so much recently, but in the past, I have I've killed a lot of time looking at some of Kirby's listings, and he's got great stuff. So it's fun to look at. Yeah, and like I told you on one of my podcasts before, I mean, who is you know Arthur Hill and Son? Okay, but I bought a, bought it from Kirby years ago. And believe me, this is the best side lock. I mean, the gun's amazing, okay? and But I caught it for an unbelievable price. It's a seven-pin side lock, gold line caulking indicators. It's stocked to the fences. And the wood to metal fit, everything's to die for. When you say right? when you say stocked to the fences, is that an expression, like a really nice piece of wood, or does that, does that mean... So? I've heard it before, but I can't. I couldn't tell you what it is. No, no, no. The stock literally goes completely to the fences. Okay, there's no metal between it. Okay, okay. Interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I I can picture that now, but yeah, I would not have I would not have not have guessed that. I got you. And this is what best guns, you know, have. They've yeah. got a few of these these traits, of course. I noticed Connecticut's bringing in a, all of a sudden a bunch of you know, great English guns that have supposedly been restored in England with proper finishes on them, which is really cool. And people might say, why an English gun now? Um, well, you know, I still have a soft spot, obviously, from reading my books for Parkers, okay? Yeah, yeah. And I went up woodcock and grouse hunting, and I loved taking a 
couple of my small bore parkers up there because it's so traditional. It looks great in the pictures. It's what people have been doing forever. Yeah. You know, and in America, they started making these small bores for upland bird hunting because the 12 gauges were all too heavy. They were duck and goose guns. Yeah. And I liked it. I said, I take pictures with it. And I got a couple lightweight parkers that work great. I love them. Okay. But the rest of the year for everything, I used my best EJ Churchill premier sidewalk, the highest grade gun they made. And nobody has to have a gun this good, but I have owned so many guns that I know the difference now. And it's kind of a shame, but the thing is so perfect that I actually enjoy it. It's like somebody that collects cars or anybody that gets involved in something, they keep wanting something finer tuned, something Mm -hmm. better, something that's the ultimate that a craftsman can do. And the EJ Churchill for me is I like how it's set up for upland bird shooting because it's made for small guys. I mean, they're light. It's got 25-inch barrels. You know, it's got the swept comb. It's got the special rib, of course. What What do you mean by swept comb? So the swept comb, if you look at the bottom of the trigger guard, it looks like it's bent sitting in the gun. Oh. It is because it's in line with the rest of the stock. Because that's how your hand's going to be cocked holding it. Okay. So it's got the exact same amount of cast off as the rest of the stock does. So it's like a, it's an ergo, ergonomic thing. And it, it is. And most guns won't do that. Like American makers didn't do that because it doesn't look great on the bottom of the gun having a little bit of angle. Okay. And Churchill also cut their guns through the wrist area really straight. So when you mount it, your hand's right right in line with your eyes. Mm. And then your finger's right there. Your wrist has to have zero movement, okay? And so this English gun, I get to looking at it, and I carry it, and it is so comfortable to carry in the field, it's ridiculous. The size of the grip for my hand. Like I said, the triggers are right there for my finger with a nice rolled-edge trigger guard that my finger's sitting on. It has assisted opener, which nobody needs, okay? Yeah. But it's beautiful. I hit the lever and it just swings itself open, pops his shells open, perfectly timed ejectors, of course. So the shells land on the ground or side by side every time. And it, it, it does. It has perfect wood to bed fit. There's no gaps. There's not going to be getting any dust and grime and crap in there. It can't. The trigger plate in the bottom doesn't have the normal screw in it that most of them do. It literally just pops into place. It's just unbelievable. And you can't even see the seam. It just looks like part of all the engraving. And the trigger pulls, you never even know you pull the trigger. It just goes off when you want it to. You know, and the, the safety switch, it just snaps on and off with, with absolute ease. But it's so definite, it never gets caught in between. And I think it has the best assisted opener of any of them because not only is it strong, it opens it incredibly. Even after you shot, it's easy to close. Yeah. Okay. And like, not to pick on them, but like on a Purdy, they're kind of hard to close. And just so, just in case anyone, assisted opener was when you, you hit the top lever, it sort of springs open, which is to aid in, correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, but to aid in reloading if you were doing a driven shoot and you're needing to reload quickly, which is why you kind of said nobody really needs that for upland hunting. Is that correct? No, it's not necessary. But what happens is some of the guns are real tight. And after you shoot, of course... Your ejectors have pushed them up against the shells up against the breech, right? And sometimes they're harder than you want them to be yeah, to open. Yeah, yeah, Okay. So all this is for ease. All this is for quickness. Right. And it kind of shows off the skilled 
of the craftsmanship. Yeah, it's, the yeah, it's craftsmanship. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Can you argue that? And same with everything else being so meticulous and perfect. Though. Right. And, and But the way it's balanced, why I keep saying that's important in a gun too, is because not only can I mount it effortlessly and quickly, is it helps in your carrying ability. This gun's balanced very close to the frame of my body. And anytime you you extend that balance out away from your body, your arms start to ache. It, it's you're not going to swing it as quickly, and it's not as comfortable to carry over hill and dale. Like I have no interest in carrying a thirty inch barrel gun in the uplands, okay, and especially not in woodcock and grouse coverts. But like I said, I'm a littler guy, yeah, and the balance point is what matters because the Churchill balance is three and a half inches beyond the front trigger. And it has a really short action bar. It's built on a 16-gauge frame. It's one, it's an inch and a 16th between the firing pin centers, and that's a 16-bore. Everything else is scaled down to a 20-gauge side. The barrels are tapered immediately past the chambers. You really feel like you're carrying and holding a 20-gauge out the field. And you're not going to get that in an American gun, but the English really fine-tuned all this. Right. That's a lot of work. And the balance point, but and it really doesn't matter the 25 inch barrels, okay? Because I have a Thomas Bland in there that has 30 inch barrels and they weigh almost exactly what these Churchill barrels weigh. Right. And you're like, how is that possible? Does that mean they're too thin? No. I mean, they're struck down. It depends on, you know, how the lumps, how heavy are the lumps on the barrel? How heavy is the steel material they use to make the barrel? The forearm weight. So, 30-inch barrels could be super light, too, and it still can balance about, about the hinge bin. Right. That's And, I mean, that's we, I, I know we, when we talked about balance before, too, it's it, it's not so much the hinge pin. It's kind of the distance from the trigger. You know, that's a more a- accurate measurement. And, like you said, a gun with completely different characteristics, you know, you could easily assume that one gun might have a certain characteristic, and that's not the case. I mean, they're just so individual, and they vary from from gun to gun. So you kind of kind of got to look at the whole package of, of an individual gun. You do. And that's the big thing about the English that I think is attractive to people's are very well balanced guns. Okay. Yep. And for the purpose. And I know a lot of people for a while were getting on the Italian best guns and man, they make some great guns. Okay. And a lot of people argue that they're just as good and the best. And for the most part, I would say yes, but my experience with them is they seem to be more barrel heavy and it's just a personal taste but i think that's one of the things that makes these english guns that are finding them affordable now why people like them and why they're so in demand gearing up for your next hunt check out ugly dog hunting company for all your dog supply needs ugly dog hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you whether you're looking for dog collars gps tracking devices kennels beds leads training equipment or first aid supplies ugly dog hunting carries it and a whole lot more new owner of the company and friend of the bird shop podcast mike nadusky loves to remind me that while i do hunt with pretty dogs every dog can be an ugly dog Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. 
For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next Upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. What have you seen in the last two, three years as far as, you know, I mean, like we could talk about inflation and all kinds of stuff and the economy and what are you seeing in, in the vintage gun world? Anything dramatic, steady increase? No, or No. No? I mean, I mean, I've been collecting Parkers forever and they haven't been going up. They're holding their own, but historically they've always gone up. Yeah, okay? right, right. If you go back yeah, 20 better years. Better than any American best. But, but I've watched the Italian guns go down. They're dropping. I can't believe the way the price is dropping. Seeing English guns go down a little bit. Yeah. Not as bad as the Italian. I've seen Spanish guns drop through the barrel. I mean, sure, you're going to spend a lot if you have one made for you, but go try to sell it for that. You'll lose half your money instantly. So their market's down. So the most consistent with, if you're trying to buy a gun to sell in the future, as far as collecting goes, the market's suffering now. I don't know what, but I still think like Parkers are holding their own. Yeah. So that's why I keep a small collection of them. And same with some of the best English guns I've got. You know, like I got a Boss Hammer gun that's just a die for, and it's not gonna, it's not gonna go down, but. And it, it all changed a little bit after the pandemic. Yeah. And things are so unsettled now that right. it's a little hard to predict, honestly. And people are worrying about some of these vintage guns because they're worrying they're not going to be able to get ammo for them. Mm-hmm. And yep. you're not going to want to pay 65, 70 bucks a box for business. And these other companies that are making business are not making them in low pressure loads. Right. Yeah. That's, that's um, the biggest sort of hole in the landscape that i see right now is just there's not a lot that is really geared towards upland payloads and velocities and that kind of stuff it's really not and and i have people and i'm going to give you an example this is a true story this was september 1st i took my churchill out of course and put 15 shells in my pocket i'm going to say this is all i'm going to shoot i don't want to be out here real long I found a little place I always stand, and there's a brush pile and a little bit of a wheat field up above. These guys always get this wheat field. They put out decoys, all this crap. And I knew my shots were going to be fast and furious because these guys have already shot at them, and they're singing over me, and I'm in this brush pile. So I shot a total of 12 rounds that day, brought three home in my pocket. I got nine birds, shot twice at one of them. Once I got my nine doves, I was like, I ain't going to shoot anymore. I need to get home. This is enough for dinner for me and my wife. And there was these guys that I went and talked to in this wheat field above me. It seemed like every time they shot at a dove, it was a cripple. And it was coming down and landing out in the field. And they're chasing it, trying to find it. And I went up there and said, hey, I'm gonna, I can help you guys look for a couple birds. Because there's still a couple that went down, down there about, about 100 yards over there to the north. I said, what the heck are you guys shooting these birds with? And they're shooting number seven steel. So I had a little talk with them. I said, so basically, if you were using lead, you're shooting a nine at them. And I can see you're shooting at quite a distance, and you're just not going to knock these birds down with nine shot. And I said, why are you using steel, first of all? Well, well, we, we thought we had to. I said, no, it's still legal to use lead here. And I said, you're crippling so many birds. This is terrible. 
stop taking those long shots if you're going to use that. And because you do, you need to increase the size of the pellet by two or three sizes right. if you're going to use steel. So that was like a lead nine that these guys were using. Okay. And they didn't realize that. So we had a little talk because I was just crushing them. I crushed all nine of my birds, you know, and I did use seven and a half shot because I knew they were going to be tall birds coming over me. And so that's kind of an example. Yeah, there's an education component with it if you if you're not familiar with that. And then it comes, you know, shot selection is a big one. Like, what what are you capable? What shots are you capable of taking and making? Absolutely, and and I know, and that's because I don't want crippled birds. And and it, and you know, when I hunt in the uplands with guys, it's not fun when they take a poke at a bird that's sixty yards out there. And, oh, I think it might have went down, and it. It's going to be a runner. It came down way up there. I'm like, well, you know, that's really not the right thing to do in the uplands for the bird. It's not enjoyable. So why? Yeah. You know? And so I, I won't take shots past about 40 yards usually in the uplands. And I very seldom, I don't think I had a single crippled bird this year. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that kind of center. stuff, you know, we you always got to be prepared to, you know, it can, you can, it can happen to anyone. You can have a shot like that and you got to be prepared to track the bird down. But it can, I guess when you realize like that can sour a hunt so quickly that like that kind of, that's sort of the overarching thing for me. I just don't take those shots because I just, I don't want to put myself in that position. Well, I'm not desperate for food. Right. And I like working in close with my dogs yeah. and, and I, and it's just, to me, it's an ethics thing and it's enjoyable anyway. And yeah. So, but that's me. But that was just an example because you need to realize that even bismuth is a little lighter than lead. Mm -hmm. So you might want to go up one size, steel two to three sizes if that's what you're going to use. And these guys can use it. I don't care. I'm not giving anybody a hard time. I'm just saying when they give me a hard time for using lead, I'm going to say, no way. Okay, I know better. And I can use it still and I'm going to as long as I can. And hopefully in the future... They're working on, on alternatives. It's just right now, obviously, the economy ain't real great over here, and it's not the top priority. Yeah. What's your course, we time getting ammo, right? Yeah, yeah, and that that's a, that's good. I was just going to ask, what is your go-to? You know, if you're looking for low-pressure stuff or say vintage guns, uh, where are you going? I mean, RST, obviously, they're still up, but anywhere else? Well, I wrote about it in my book, but unfortunately, my book came out years ago. Yeah. And things changed after the COVID, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, our problem is, is nobody's wanting to import and export the ammo in because it costs too much, plus there's a tax on it. So I already talked to Morris Baker about it. If they did that, they'd be selling these great English loads over here, low pressure, Ely's, whatever, you know, $60, $70 a box, okay, because of the cost of them and importing them and the taxes, so nobody wants to, and we were bringing all of our low pressure powder in, mostly all over the place, mostly from Italy, and their factories all got shut down with COVID. And then when they got ramped back up, you know, they're going to take care of themselves and they're operating at half speed rather than shipping it to us. So like you said, RST still bringing some in, but people buy them out instantly. You got to look all the time. Yeah. So I got a buddy that, great guy, his name's Andrew. And his website is claysammo.com, and he is Wing Hunter Imports. Well, he just came out with a vintage line, and it's our, our Muska. I don't know if I'm saying it right. 
but he is the agent and they've got some two and a half inch low pressure 12 gauge right now that are just phenomenal six percent at the money lead it looks and like looks like armusa armusa a-r-m-u-s-a yes. i just looked yes. it up is That's that a, is that an italian no made in spain so, it looks like no 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 this is italian oh okay so there are Italian loads, and I bought a bunch of, of his trap loads from him because they got some incredible trap loads, and I was using that on Huns and stuff this year. Oh, yeah, they got two-and-a-half-inch vintage Classico 28-gauge, one-ounce load. Yeah, they got some interesting stuff here. So they got great stuff, and, and the guy, Andrew Andreas, is his real name, I guess, but he beckons, I, he agrees, I call him Andrew. He's going to bring in some really neat nickel-plated stuff before season next year with five, six, and sevens for pheasant. Hmm. And I'm talking real nickel plating. Yeah. I mean, it's right. going to be 10 microns thick, not just a wash, and it's going to be over 6% antimony lead. But these loads that I was using of his was for, not for sporting clays, but what's the other sport that they do? Helis? It was a Helios load. It was yeah, a Helios I just saw load. that. Are the one ounce Helios loads, 6% antimony. They're only one ounce. And that's what I used in Wyoming this year on Huns and Chucker in seven and a half shot. I didn't have a single cripple. I mean, they were so good. I used them seven and a half on a game farm already once this year on pheasants with no cripples. And I mean, clean burning, you know, no residue left in your barrels. I mean, the recoil was low. I was really impressed. But this is what, I mean, he's carrying top loads at. They shoot live pigeons over there and everything with these loads. That's their number one load. Yeah. So we're talking good stuff. So people can check with them. I know Salt Creek Ammo is doing some bismuth in yep. some two-and-a-half-inch 12-gauge. Yep, I've seen um, them. You can, you can find game bore all over the place now again, but be careful because the traditional game are low pressure. But the gold that they got out now that they're selling at two and a half inch or higher pressure, they're about 9,500, which is still fine, but you get a lot of recoil, which is hard on your gun. So recoil is definitely an issue to me too, because it just is hard on your old vintage guns. Yeah. And it's not necessary. I've got, yeah, I have seen some of the game boards that, well, cause doesn't Kent own game board now? Correct. Yeah. And uh, there's a website that I go to a lot, Clay Shooter Supply, which was recommended to me by another listener. And I get I get their emails, and they got some good stuff. They always they they have game. I think I bought a case of Game Bore, the Regal 12 gauge. I bought a case of yeah. those from them. And the Regals are about 9,500 okay. SI, and you know your vintage guns can handle it. It's getting on the high side. They still say it's acceptable for any two and a half inch gun that's a nitro proof, but they got a lot of recoil too because you've seen the velocity on them. And when you have a lot of velocity, right, it equates. It doesn't equate into more barrel pressure, but it equates more into the recoil. And people think it equates into barrel pressure, but it does not. One of the biggest things that does is how heavy your payload is. Yeah. And so if your gun is nitro proofed and it says, you know, one and an eighth ounce, don't shoot over one and an eighth ounce loads of it. That's my point being. And I, I talked about all that in my, in my second book. And I don't know. I, I suppose that's all it needs to said about the non-toxic shot. But if anybody's got any questions, they can always ask me. But, sure. you know, I'm not against anything. I did buy some business loads for when I have to use it when I'm hunting, a, you know, a wetland somewhere where it is not very often for me. Right. For a performance-wise, for a lead equivalent, bismuth is one to turn to. Absolutely. What's your, 
Okay, so we're going to segue a little bit. What's your thought on ribs and it, or thoughts, if any, on, say, a concave rib, game rib versus a flat rib? Do you care about the rib? Are you just looking at the target and not worrying about the rib? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, my argument has always been it doesn't matter because I want people to stare at the bird and not even know a rib exists. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I have noticed to be honest now that I'm shooting Churchill so much that I really like that rib. And I think I pick it up in my peripheral vision for a split second. And then I get focused on the bird. I don't see it again. And I like it because it seems to draw my eyes towards the bird. I don't think it's necessary. And any true, you know, English shooter will say it doesn't matter. Just stare at the bird. And I, I would have to say that I, that's probably really true. Like for, for the most part, yeah. Yep, and, and I see too many guys shooting, you know, clay pigeons that care about the rib because a lot of them use the rib and a lot of them are aiming and not pointing. Mm -hmm. And you can get away with it on a lot of, you can with trap, I can guarantee you that, shooting yeah. trap. Yeah. But boy, you start doing that on game birds and you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's, yeah. kind of, that's kind of the point that I've arrived at. Again, I'm, you know, I'm, I've been doing it for as long as you. So I was curious as your thoughts. And I get that question a lot when we're building guns with RFM ribs and my, my kind of thinking I've shot, I've shot them both. And I, I mean, for, I never really was a much of a clay shooter or doing anything competitive like that. So I just never, never was tempted by any of that. I've never shot around a trap in my life. All I've ever done is shot birds and I pretty much just look at the bird and shoot and, I have benefited greatly from doing a gun fitting and learning about, you know, how different stock profiles fit me and what kind of gun I need. But once I arrive at that point, I mean, I just look at the bird and shoot and I don't pay much attention to the rib at all. Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll shoot with anybody and I haven't shot clay pigeons for three years. Okay. The last time I shot clay pigeons, I talk about me and my wife bring a little trap throw and she gets to throw them crazy however she wants. <laughs> I got to have my safety on, my gun not mounted. And last time I brought two boxes of shells, I thought, shot 50 rounds and I busted 49 pigeons three years ago. Since then, nothing. <laughs> and, and I keep coming across people, well, I haven't had time to go to the clay range. And, and, and I've had some people buy some guns. I mean, I'm, and I'm like, you don't need to. Just practice in your house. Get to where you can mount that gun perfect every time. Muscle memory. Look. Swing it through the ease of your house, point it at different spots all over the house and get to where that gun is just part of your body and let your eyes do the work. It's the best computer there is. I mean, I watch football. I mean, and it amazes me how these quarterbacks are hitting guys running down the field full blast and just put that ball in the right place right, perfectly right. every time. You think they're thinking they have to throw it super hard because he's longer or they're thinking about well i better lead him about 15 yards and maybe they don't think anything it happens fast and they just it's muscle memory they're using their eyes their depth perception it all happens instantaneously it has to or they're sacked yeah okay you want to shoot shotgun the same way practice in your house and never think about it again because as soon as you start thinking about it you're calculating and it slows you down, and it's not instinctive shooting. You want to do it with your subconscious, and just go out there and have a great time, and you'll do fine. Yeah, I would say 
I would add to that that if you you know if you've gone through the steps, some of the stuff you you describe in your books, the patterning and checking the point of impact. You know, if you've ensured that that gun does fit you well enough and and shoots where you're looking for the most part, then yeah, I I think you can get you know quite a bit out of practicing your gun mount more so than than shooting clays. Not not to discourage people from going to shoot clays, but like you don't need to beat yourself up about it. No, shooting clays is great, but then you get guys that are trying to take their Krieg off, an ungodly heavy gun, and trying to go upland bird hunt with it. And then out there in the field, they are. They're carrying it like a suitcase. (laughs) It's over their shoulder. It's heavy. It's miserable. And then they find out that the bird hunt is not the same thing. Well, same thing with my guys taking their light little bird guns out to the sporting clay range or whatever for a day, and they don't shoot it so well. They're not the same gun they're not for the same purpose. And we've talked about this before, and I just hope people understand that, that all I'm talking about is the uplands and all these different upland birds that I shoot. Right. The right gun for it, the right style of shooting for it is different. And you can do both, no question. Yeah. I'm, I just don't because I don't have the time, the extra money. I'm not going to buy different guns for, you know, sporting clays. You would just and rather just shoot one of your... Upland guns on clays, it you know, it sounds like. Yeah, and if I do shoot clays, I do them my own style, and I do go out and shoot the guns I'm going to use. Yeah. You know, and I probably do it more for my wife than anything because she struggles, but it's because she won't practice in the house like me. <laughs> it doesn't have time, and I'm not going to complain because it's fine. I get her out there, and she loves the bird dogs. That's her thing, and she's way better with the dogs than I ever dreamed of. Right, right. We talked about that last. You guys are both personal trainers too, aren't you? Yeah, we're both personal trainers at the gym. So do you do you butt heads on coaching styles and that sort of thing? No, I learned a long time ago that uh, I don't have anything to do with her clients. I don't tell her what to do. Sure, I don't pay sure. attention. She does her thing, and then we do just fine. That's and cool. I guess it's maybe even that way with bird hunting and stuff. She's got a right to do her thing, and I'm just glad she's out there having a great time. Yeah, no doubt. Cool. Well, I did. I wrote this down. Is there so? We've we've taught you know you've owned some guns you've owned a bunch of guns and and you've you've certainly tracked down some things that you've wanted. Is there a gun out there that like a unicorn gun that you kind of have at the top of your list? Like you'd love to have this gun, or you know, I know last time we talked about the Dixon round action and that sort of thing. Is there anything on your list that you haven't yet been able to find? No, I, I've owned them all. I've owned a couple Purdies. I'm not a huge fan of. Holland and Hollands. I love bosses. I own one boss. I got several E.J. Churchills. So I would have to say, and, and like I said, uh, I just sold one of them, but I still got a William Powell. Not really. I mean, how, I, I how think, about how about this, Doug? Is there a gun that you have sold that you wish you had back? Wow. Well, now that I could definitely give you a whole <laughs> list of that, and that would be a, a, a John Dixon. Okay. Just to me, I. I I think that they handle great, and I love the trigger freight round action, very graceful. Mm-hmm. And I, I have had regrets with some old, different, neat little Fox 20 gauges and 16 gauges mm-hmm. that I can't even buy back now because they're too expensive. Right, right, yep. Because we were talking to CE grade and XE. I still got a CE, but so, yeah, all kinds of regrets with neat stuff I sold over the years. <laughs> I had a really neat, when Ithaca tried to, that Lamblight tried to bring them back. And started baking Ithacas again. Hmm. I had ordered a 4E, and this is by, you know, classic doubles, and he was making them again. It was a neat project. 
And it had two sets of 28-gauge barrels and a set of 410 barrels, a three-barrel set. It had a straight stock. It had a splinter forearm. You could use interchangeably on the barrels and a beaver tail. And I almost had a chance to buy it back here a few years ago, and I knew it was my gun. It's the only one he made like that. And I think they wanted nineteen or $20,000 for it. And I just couldn't do it. And I regretted selling that gun. That just came to mind. Yeah, yeah. And I did sell a, a couple of neat purdies that I can't replace because they're too much money now that I probably shouldn't have. Right. And I do think, you know, purdies is always has and always will. And they're still in business, which is great. Uh, made one of the best guns ever in the world. So I, I would say that's probably the extent of it. Otherwise, I'm pretty content. I got to all kinds of neat stuff and I'm selling some off here and there because my goal is someday my wife lets me have this collection is when we relocate and move and are trying to retire or whatever, I'm going to sell my whole gun collection and only keep a couple that I use. And that's going to be a very sad day, but it's going to come. Well, I hope you put me on the list of people you call when you go to do that, Doug. Yeah. And I, I meet some special people. I got a special friend I met that I could become very good friends with. And I've sold him a couple Parkers because he wanted a, you know, zero frame, 16 gauges. And who do, who doesn't want a zero frame, 16 gauge Parker? Well, there you go. <laughs> he actually met me up there at Woodcock Grouse hunted with me this year in Michigan. And That's cool. We sat around the campfire and had our Parkers and, you know, they're both GH zero frame. Damascus, 16 gauges, and it was just beautiful time. That's fun. Well, Doug, we covered covered a bit. Any other? Were there any other questions that I know folks had been emailing you and asking you stuff? Anything we missed? You think? I think the main thing was they just wanted to find English guns, and now we kind of covered some good ones. We mm-hmm. covered that they just got to figure out the weight and stock dimensions they need, and I think it was important that. They understand what a perfect upland bird gun is, and that's a light gun. Light for them is an individual. Right, yeah, relative. And that it's they can mount it great, of course, that it's a side-by-side with two different chokes in each barrel, of course. And, you know, that it's a gun that's really sentimental to them and that they really like. It's just going to add to the, the whole treasure of the journey. So that's the questions I get the most lately anyway. And we covered the, you know, non-toxic shot. And if there's nothing else you can think about, I think that we definitely covered some good stuff. Yep. DougStewartAuthor.com. I'll link to that. You got your email on there, DougStewartAuthor at gmail.com. That's the best place for people to get in touch with you, Doug. Absolutely. And, and they do need to let me know which book they want and who they want me to autograph it to because I had a lot of women buying it for their husband. And they wouldn't leave their email, so I couldn't ask them their husband's name. Ah. And so I was just filling them out to the wife. I mean, hopefully she can enjoy the book, too. Are they both available now, one and two? So they're both available. Okay. And there's several places that sell them, but I know that they're on Amazon, my website, obviously. I do I want to tell you that Brian Belinsky is selling them out of his shop, and he's the one that sold me my Churchill, and he is a fantastic shooting coach and a gun fitter. And he's got a brand new book out. Oh, does he? Oh, yeah. Maybe I knew that. And a video, too. And he is just a great, neat, neat guy. And believe me, he knows double double guns. He's been around for a long time. I just was reading the... I, I went back into my library and I was reading the a couple books. I don't know if you ever... I know you got a lot of gun books, but do you ever read like the anthology books, Come October and Bear November Days? 
grouse and woodcock books? Yeah, I got them in a stack on my mantle okay. right here. Yeah, I, I was digging back through. Actually, a listener had mentioned, it was either a listener or a customer at Up and Gun Company had mentioned reading Brian's article in Come October on the perfect woodcock gun. And I went back to read it. It's really, it's really neat. You know, everything in those books is is good reading. But yeah, Brian's got some good stuff in there, and that's a that's a that goes a ways back. They're a long ways back, but yeah, he just in the last year came out with another book and another video, and it is on you know upland um, shooting. So I think it could be to everybody's interest. And like I said, he's a great guy. You want to take one of his classes on on coaching on shooting. With a side by side, he's a great guy, so I can always recommend him. And I've had a lot of people um, get your, I'm sure, contact you about getting a gun from that you guys sell. Yeah, and yeah. I appreciate you helping people to get a good fit gun and a good gun that they can enjoy. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It's all part of it, like you said. And more and more people have an appreciation for double guns and upland birds and the places they live. Uh, it's a better world for that, right? It's a better world for it. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And, and you know, God bless everybody. And you know, I thank you for your time. And I thank you for the listener's time. All right, Doug. Well, it's been uh, been a pleasure catching up with you as always. I'm sure we'll, we'll connect again in the future. Hang on with me for just a second. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.